Food, finance, and politics, and basically whatever I want to talk about. Uh, we're back with um, Wiseology, and I'm now about to. I'd like to introduce you to my best friend and one of my oldest friends, Brett Pollock. Uh, in addition to being a great friend, he's an amazing entrepreneur, um, a business leader within the insurance community, the independent insurance community. I'll let him tell you a little more about that later. Uh, and now we're interviewing Brett Pollock, Senior Managing Director of Foundation Risk Partners. And we're broadcasting from uh, Watermill, New York, which is on the east end of Long Island. And some of you might know it as the Hamptons. Brett, welcome. Thanks for having me. Jason and I have been childhood friends. We've known each other forever. While we were single, while we were married, everything in between. Had uh, some good times over the years. Oh, Brett. Um, well, let's let's dive right in. Tell us about the insurance business as a whole um, and where you see it going five to 10 years from now. So it's a, a little bit of a sleepy industry. Not a lot of people follow it, um, but there are some pretty interesting things happening. I think it's it's been a you know pretty traditional in the sense that People would rely upon a broker to act as their intermediary and they would um, basically turn decision-making authority to them and allow them to basically source a portfolio that was reflective of what they they thought they needed. The The reality is there's a lot of pressure on the industry and uh, many people think who are smarter than us that it's ripe for, dis, for some disintermediation and it's going to move more and more online into... Um, an online platform where it's simple enough that you can sort of click through. So simple things like homeowners and auto insurance that used to be sourced by guys like me can be done online, cut out the middle person, save the VIG, and you're, uh, you're in a neutral spot. Well, let me, hold on, let me stop you there for a second. Now, look, if someone just needs basic auto insurance, they're not calling someone like you. But if someone has a complex portfolio uh, like business insurance, um, I don't know, uh, like life, life insurance strategies it, where it's not so cookie cutter. Is that where you step in? Right. So that's our sweet spot. So on larger, more complex issues where there are, you know, either risk management or loss control issues, the, you know, most people will seek an advisor to, consult and, and sort of lead them down the path as to how to manage their portfolio. So I, I think there will always be a place for insurance broker in the upper middle market and beyond, but I think the small business probably moves more and more online and, and brokers that were focused on that area of the business likely get disintermediated and, and left out in the cold. Okay. So on that note, let's talk about some of the companies that you think are going to prevail in this high touch end of the business. And some of the companies that might prevail in the low touch, you know, if brokers get disintermediated, like for example, maybe Geico is one of the, is a company that I know that's owned by Berkshire Hathaway. So if I was an investor and I wanted to play the insurance industry, in your opinion, what do you think I should be eyeing in terms of a long-term investment? So I think, I mean, Geico as an example has legs. There's no question they've, 
They've taken market share. They're now one of the top five auto underwriters in the world. They've transitioned beyond auto. They're now writing some homeowners, although they don't always do it under their brand. They're writing some motorcycle insurance. So they've diversified. So is it, so Warren Buffett in this case knows what he's doing or is it just a matter of you know, throwing shit against a wall and eventually it's going to pay off? Yeah, no, I think he's found something. I mean, he's uh, he's managed to find a way to either a young consumer or someone that just wants a quick solution. They can call an 800 number, they can go online, they can click through five channels and, and basically source their auto insurance and never look back. So I think for the basic consumer that has relatively low needs and doesn't need a high touch, they're probably a good solution. All right, so- the only way I can participate in that is by owning Berkshire, right? Berkshire A or B. What companies are independent that are similar to Geico that you think might be a compelling investment, if any? Uh, you know, I think Chubb will continue. Chubb kind of plays there on the other end of the pendulum. So if you swing all the way upstream, Chubb plays in the Uber high net worth market and they've gobbled up two of their competitors along the way. So um, it was a narrow field to begin with, but Ace and Fireman's Fund, which at one point were fierce competitors to Chubb, are now part of the Chubb label. So they've single-handedly taken out two of the competitors in the market, and they're left with about four other prevailing companies that are in that space that compete in the same demographic that um, you know basically swap market share week to week. Hmm. But I, if I was thinking about the upper end, I would, I would be very focused on Chubb. Anything in the, like, I see all these State Farm commercials with, you know, all the football players and all the athletes. I mean, like, like a State Farm, I mean, are they in the game? Or like the progressive, right. you, know, you know, all these companies that spend a tremendous amount of money and it looks like their cost of acquisition based on the advertising seems pretty high. Is this sticky business? Once these guys gain these customers, is it very difficult for them to to switch? Or, I mean, how does that work? Yeah. So the it's as you said, the client acquisition costs are through the roof. I mean, it's all marketing, and it's it's expensive. It's thirty second slots during primetime TV. It's major marketing campaigns. You know, trillions and trillions of dollars as an industry. But I think. Um, all in all, it's a big enough market that they probably all survive. But if I was trying to pick a, a winner in that space, it's probably Geico. Okay. And now, but now when your cost of acquisition is very different because the way I understand it, your, your business is all really word of mouth, referrals, personal relationships, business relationships. People obviously that are certainly happy with the services that you're offering your clients. They refer people or they, they, they buy more right. uh, products if they need them. Yeah, we've been lucky in, in my little ecosystem. We haven't advertised. It's been word of mouth, centers of influence, everyone from accountants to lawyers that have clients that they refer. So it's a, it's a healthy mix of business across every spectrum. All right. So um, um, I've just come into a lot of money uh, as an example. I haven't come into any money. <laughs> um, I come into a lot of money or I make a lot of money. I want to diversify my investments, I want you to invest, I, I want you to insure my investments, whether they're businesses or boats or whatever it is. So I call up, I guess the name of your business is Foundation Risk Partners. So is there a solid foundation? 
are there risks involved? <laughs> and you're dealing with a bunch of partners. I mean, I, that's what I do. I just call you guys, right? And or one of your partners, and <laughs> and 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 you guys all set it up for me, right? I don't have to do anything. Yeah, the the goal is to keep it uh, so it's super simple from your end. The the end user doesn't have a lot of disruption. They you know, obviously we need to understand the portfolio and understand the risks in order to model it properly. But once we get through some fact finding, it should, shouldn't be a heavy lift on your side. All right. Awesome. Well, I, I already know who to call because you already do my insurance, but <laughs> <laughs> anyone who's listening is your guy. Um, all right, Brett. So uh, you and I discuss the market all the time. Uh, the equity market, that is not the insurance market. Where do you think, um, where do you think the market's going? The U.S. equity market. You bullish? You bearish? What's up? I am extremely uncertain and feel like there's a cloud, you know, overhanging the entire market. I think it's very much dependent upon the election. I think the next everything leading up to November is going to be super choppy. I think if you have high tolerance for volatility, this is a great time to be invested. And if you can't stomach the highs and lows and peak to troughs, it's it's a time to sort of put some cash on the sidelines and, and wait for a sunny day where there's more clarity. Okay. Now that was your professional opinion. Um, is your money on the sideline or are you invested? I'm on the sideline. You're on the sideline. Yeah, it's I'm, funny for you know a guy like you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, you like to take chances. I, I, I don't see, I don't see you sidelining it, but I, Hey, I've moved, a, I've moved on a percentage basis, a healthy portion to cash. I, don't think I have any visibility what happens between now and November. And I feel like as, you know, dependent upon who looks like the lead will very much determine where the market goes. And just because I have no idea how that plays out between, you know, now and the next few months, I just didn't want to stomach the the ride. All right. Well, I get that. Now, let me ask you this. Based on the outcome of the election, do you see one of the candidates as more favorable for the market or less favorable for the market or it doesn't really impact the market? I mean, I hear the uncertainty and that the election, it sounds like, is impacting your, uh, not necessarily just yours, but other people's opinions of it being um, too much of a risk right? Uh, or too much of an unknown. And as we know, the market doesn't like the unknown. Um, but is there a candidate you see that's more favorable for the market or the continued growth of the stock, the U S stock indexes or, or no? I think if, uh, it looks like Biden and the Democrats take control, I think there's a pullback in the market. It's probably short term. And then I, th I think it normalizes to historical times where we've seen, you know, very measured growth, uh, over long periods. I don't think you'd see the choppy, you know, ups and downs that, that we saw under the Trump regime. I think if Trump, uh, has a second term and and remains the incumbent. It's rip city. This thing's to the moon. It's interesting. They're a little conflicted. If Trump's elected, it's rip city, which I I, I agree with you. Um, but if Biden takes over, you think that the market? And by the way, I happen to agree with you that if there is a, it's apolitical. It, if someone, if there's a change in an administration, the market usually sells off because the market acclimates to whoever is there. Um, but the one thing 
that really troubles me as an investor is that what the Biden campaign is promising in terms of how they're going to treat capital gains, which will have a definitely negative impact on capital investment, stock investment. And that to me is something that the market will not acclimate to. Um, but hey, that's my opinion. And well, it is what it is. <laughs> okay, Brett, one of the things that I'm very interested to talk to you about um, is COVID and its impact directly on your business as a small business owner and the business environment within your industry. Um, if you could just touch on that and, and tell me and anyone else who's listening, um, I think we'd all like to know. Yeah. I mean, the, the COVID's obviously negative in a million different ways, but in terms of how it's impacted us specifically, it, it's almost touched every aspect of our business. I mean, it, we, obviously a lot of our clients have had business failures, which is you know mostly unfortunate for them, but obviously hurts our business as well. The business failures have come, um, specifically the hospitality space has been decimated. The, I mean, restaurant tours have obviously suffered dramatically. And I think big box retailers have, I mean, unless they had an e-commerce strategy, they've gotten pretty badly hurt. So in our world, from the insurance side, much of our business is tied into payroll, gross receipts, uh, employee headcount, wages. So as those things contract, the commissions contract with them on a prorated basis. So we, we've definitely felt the impact of COVID. Do have any of those, obviously the hospitality business is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, and with my experience in that business, I 1000% get it. Um, have there been any positives that have come out of this? Like have people stepped up certain levels of insurance because they need protection in case, for example, you have a retail business that someone can come in and say, hey, look, I got sick in your business and now we're coming after you. So have have other business products been developed as a direct response to this? Like, for example, terrorism insurance after 9-11 was developed. Right. Yeah, I mean, the one specific product line, well, there are two in particular, but I'll give you one at a time. The first one is cyber insurance. So when you're in an office environment, it's a lot easier to quality control breaches, encryption, and, and put security in place to avoid attacks. When you have a workforce that's mostly remote and people working off their personal devices, it's a lot more difficult to manage it. And the industry's seen a significant spike in breaches and they've come in all shapes and sizes. And as a result, almost every client across the board, if they didn't have cyber as part of their portfolio, they're now considering it. The other side that's just taken an absolute beating has been employment practice liability, which is everything from wrongful termination suits, discrimination. And there have been just a crazy spike in litigation from furloughs, layoffs, reduction in work hours. And um, employers have definitely been more mindful about upping. If they didn't have that coverage, they're very much making it part of their portfolio. And if they were existing customers that had the business, they're very much considering significantly higher limits and coverage forms. Huh. All right. Well, uh, I don't know. I guess uh, disease can be viewed both ways. There's positives and negatives. Um, and I guess it really is the yin and the yang. What's great for some, not good for others, and the vice versa. 
Um, okay, Brett, let's talk about um, your favorite foods, and let's see if we agree, disagree, or, you know, have a complete meltdown of a debate. Um, what is your favorite food? So I think this is going to be disappointing, but last meal before they put me away, spaghetti and meatballs, straight down the middle, oversized meatballs, breadcrumbs, light on the tomato sauce, and super thin pasta that you can twirl around your fork 50 times. 50. It's got to be 50. Maybe 25, no good. It's got to be 50. (laughs) So you're like an angel hair, like an, an angel hair guy. Yeah. Yeah, the angel hair always breaks up when you twist the, it up. The lazy way would be penne. Penne, you know, couple of pennies you're, you know, per serving. Yeah. When, it, when you go angel hair, you got to work. You got to twirl and cut. It's a whole and you're thing. definitely getting on your shirt when you're twirling, right? I mean, that last twirl when it whips around, you're spraying it all over yourself. The penne, you can just stick the fork through, you're good. Yeah, penne's safe bet. All right, well, I am not, I, I am a little shocked that that would be your last meal because I think since I've known you for, at least 25 years uh, longer. I don't think I've ever seen you order that once. So the <laughs> fact that that's your favorite, I would have pegged you for sushi because you, you love sushi. I mean, we both love sushi, but yeah. Uh, Sushi's a very close second. And other than Sunday nights, I won't have sushi Sunday nights, but Monday through Saturday, I'm, I'm good with sushi. All right. Um, so, where are you ordering this in, or are you guys preparing this at home? This spaghetti meatball meal. This no, this is uh, this is external. We we go outbound for that. Now, do you try different spots, or is it you have like a rotation of a couple restaurants that are your go to? And again, we're in COVID, so some of these places might not be open or closed. But in general, my my all time favorite was Il Molino, which unfortunately some they're probably I don't know how many locations, but many of the locations actually failed due to COVID and are, I think in chapter 11. So who knows what it looks like coming out of COVID, but those that remain, I'll continue to try and find the normal, you know, for spaghetti and meatballs. Okay. You ever try Elio's? Elio's is great. I know it's way away from where you live, but what do they do? Wednesday nights? <laughs> spaghetti and meatballs? They have like spaghetti and meatball night. It's Wednesday night. Uh, well, you'll have to change from Sunday to Monday. Okay. Um, you have a sweet tooth, right? Love dessert. Um, what is what is the dessert for Brett? So anything chocolate, although I don't go dark chocolate, anything milk chocolate, cookies are my thing. I love the oversized soft cookie, heat it up, get a little bit of melting, it bleeds over. That's by far and away my my one. All right, so where are you going with like, Okay, last meal, you, you, you got a death sentence. You got one night. Where are the last cookies coming from? So I, I need two nights because I've got to hit Levan's. Okay. And then I, I have to make my way over to Milk and Cookies. All right, Different now- types. The Levan's is the chunky, oversized. That in itself is a meal. It's a gigantuan cookie. And Milk and Cookies is super thin, normal size, but they have sugar, everything they have, rainbows off the charts. Okay, so... Chocolate chip cookie would be the last. Right. But under that, that milk and cookies and their flavor variations take a backseat to that, but they're right up there. As long as it's a soft cookie, like a Tate's cookie in New York is not my thing because it's a hard cookie. It's crispy. It's, it's funny. I used to like Tate's. You like Tate's? I like Tate's. They're very messy to eat. Um, I'm a fan of Tate's pies. 
the pies are amazing off the charts, but the cookies not, obviously I'm in the minority because they're killing it. If, if you go to any grocer, you'll find takes cookies on the shelf. Well, to be fair, when you go to a grocer, unless you're banging down chips, ahoy or, or like uh, Oreos, Cookie selection is pretty commercial. So Tate's is, I guess, as close as you can get to the natural cookie. Even yeah, I mean, it's like rock hard. Right. I'd rather have like a Duncan Hines soft sort of creation than a Tate's. Look at you. So you're like the soft guy. I'm a soft it's guy. Generally, it's the soft theme. <laughs> All right. Um, and by the way, LeVan, not cheap. I'm expecting, I'm expecting it's, it's, it's funny you go spaghetti meatballs although your restaurant choice for the spaghetti meatballs is high end but it's not it's a very simple meal but you really go I mean this is the Rolls Royce of I'm, I'm ultimately of a simple guy <laughs> <laughs> with slight expensive taste Cookie outside taste. of the norm right alright uh, okay now pizza I need to know First, what type of pizza you like, you know, the style of pizza, and then I need your your number one favorite pizza. Um, and not necessarily your, like, the everyday go-to, but if, like, it was your last pizza, what is it and where is it from? I go thin crust because deep dish is just too heavy. I don't love all the carbs. So thin crust, I can eat a lot of that and not feel terrible at the end. Okay. Anything coming out of a brick oven. As okay. long as they don't burn the edges, I like it lightly browned. Oh, okay. Or so you're even, not a, you're not a, you don't like the the leoparding. Right. You don't like you know, the leoparding is no good for you. Exactly. Okay. And then I I really go with the traditional plain pizza. I mean, the only thing I would ever put on it, this is aggressive as I get, is pepperoni or mushroom. But I'm mostly a plain guy. All right, I respect that. I, I respect that. Most a lot of people that are true pizza snobs, they're like cheese only. That's the basis for comparison. And then everything else on top of that is Mickey Mouse. I dip, I disagree with the Mickey Mouse thing, but it is what it is. I respect I respect <laughs> your your flavor choice. But now I really here's the tough question. Your number one pizza place. What is it? So the I have a lot of them, but the local number one, and this is partially because I have family, young kids, is a little chain in New York called Serafina. And for pizza connoisseurs, they would be outraged by that answer. As am I. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard. Yeah, but the the brick oven helps them. I mean, I think anything you slide in and out of a brick oven comes out pretty well. Well, truth be known, um, even bad pizza is is edible unless you're a total pizza snob like myself but you can even the slightest buzz and the worst pizza in the world tastes like caviar right so you get a pass on that (laughs) (laughs) well brett thanks uh for joining us and um and thanks for being a great friend as well so there you go brett pollock from foundation risk partners thank you jason appreciate having me Like I said, a broken clock is right twice a day. They're eventually going to be right. But in the meantime, they're a bowl of wrong. Hey, 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 hey. Okay. A solid Olympic 10. Absolute zero. 
Food, finance, and politics, and basically whatever I want to talk about.